Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that your precious son said that two or three are gathered in his name that you will be in the midst of us. We pray that your word, which is infallible, may be alive for each one of us personally, that you will encourage us, that you will enable us and challenge us, Father, for the times in which we live, that you will grant us the fullness of your spirit, granting us boldness and the desire, Father, to know what your will is for each one of us through this fellowship that we serve in. We ask for your presence and your blessing upon us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before I bring you the word of God, I want to take this opportunity, which I've not done ever before, to pay honor to Bill Pomery. He doesn't know about it. But 43 years ago, as a young 25-year-old, a young man at my Bible college in Tasmania, during his quiet time, felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to invite me to come and spend holidays at his home in Butler Terrace in Narracott, which I never knew existed. And uh, the only snag was that if this was God's will, and I was living by faith, that God would provide the airfares for me to come to this town. And of course God did provide the income, and the reason was that I had to come and hopefully share the gospel with his parents who had, um, had left the church because of some hurt and pain that they had gone through and been not treated well by the minister, I was told. But And I'd come, and I'd come with um, Chris Waples uh, to Mont Gambia and it was in the days in which they weighed you and your luggage so that you'll know where you'll sit in the plane from Melbourne to Mont Gambia. And I'd come hoping that God will open the door to share with the family, but amazingly, by the end of that week, I ended up sharing my testimony for my conversion from Hinduism and communism to Christianity. And in that, a message got to Bill Pomery, and I got to meet Bill Pomery. And in an amazing way, a man who I'd never seen till that time, God had used to open many doors for me in South Australia and make lifelong connections that took me to different parts of the world in Sillies. And I want to pay tribute to Bill because my first two weeks in South Australia, as I came to commence ministry, was staying with Bill and Melva Pomery in their home for two weeks. And then, amazingly, the people that are here are in this congregation, that as a young man, a young married couple, um, Peter and Beth Gale uh, took me under their wings and uh, became friends to us and then to my wife who uh, I married uh, who also met Bill before she uh, was married to me and uh, they became our long, long life friends to this very day that we're staying at their home when we came here to minister. So I just want to thank God for the friends and for the influence of Bill Pomery on my life in my early years of ministry and connections that was made for me. And I give God all thanks and praise for the wonderful ways in which he works in our lives, even to this day. Amen. This morning I bring you a message of encouragement, but also a message of challenge for you as a people of God. 
And my message comes from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. There's a whole prayer there, but it actually starts off with God saying to them, when I shut the heavens and there's no rain, and then as you continue to rebel or don't listen to me, the plagues come. And there will be drought, there will be floods, and if you suffer pain and you realize what you're doing is wrong and you seek my face and humble yourself. And he's not speaking to the unbelievers. He's speaking to the Christians. He says, if my people who are called by my name, I better use my glasses. I, uh, thank you, Peter, for lending me your glasses. I left mine around. <laughs> If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. This is rather amazing because God is not speaking to the decadent unbeliever, idol worshipper. He's speaking to his own children. And he's saying that if you would seek, uh, humble yourself and seek my, pray to him and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And of course, assuring them in that prayer that if they continue to pray, he will hear them and if they cry out to him, that he will undertake for their needs. You know, in an amazing way, we are living in similar times to that which of the times of Chronicles and more so like the days of the judges where it is said that each man did what was right in his own eyes. Today we no longer live by fact which can be proven and looked at but today we live by opinion and how we feel what is relative to our feeling and our circumstances to the point where now our society is morally so decadent people don't even know what, right, what is right and what is wrong. And we have all kinds of people that if you cross them, that they will attack you in such ways through modern technology to the point where they will cancel you out. And we live in a culture that is so, nobody knows what's right or wrong. People live in such confusion, they don't know whether they're male or female. And that's the kind of society we're living in. And it's nothing different to the times of the judges where each one did what was right in his own eyes and didn't listen to what God had said. The pattern from Genesis to Revelation is still the same. God speaks, he sends his prophets and the people don't listen, they suffer the consequences and it is amazing that the human race can only understand pain and that when pain comes in different ways they will cry out to God and God in his merciful grace will forgive them, restore them, they go on their way, they soon forget God and fall in love with their blessings and, the, and the, the moral standards are repeated over and over again. Nothing changes, the language might be different, the approach might be different, but the essence is still the same. And so it was the great Winston Churchill who said that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat them. Take a look at society today. All the conditions that 
preceded the fall of many great Western civilizations are in place again today. We as Christians ask, can our nation, Australia, be saved? <clears throat> the answer is yes. Because way back in the Old Testament, God told Abraham if he could find ten righteous people, he would stay his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But ten people could not be found. And a righteous minority can still save a nation. How? Through prayer. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face. That word, the verb seek, is not when you are in trouble. When you are facing a crisis, you send up a quick SOS to God and expect God to bail you out. That's not what the word seek is. The word seek is in a continuous tense in the sense that you keep on going to God and you keep on asking. Matthew 7, 7. Keep on seeking and you, and you will find him. Keep on asking and he will answer you. Keep on knocking on God's door. It is not a quick prayer when you are in a crisis. But it is an intimate relationship with God where you cry your heart to God. You intercede for your people, your family, for those that you know and love that don't know the Lord, that God will reveal himself to them. If my people who are called by my name, in today's language, the Christians who are called by the name of their Savior, shall humble themselves and seek God's face for the situation that is around us. And God promises that he will hear us. But it first calls us as children of God to humble ourselves. In other words, put yourself under God's mercy, God's kindness, God's love, and look to him, realizing that nothing in myself can make me worthy before the Lord. Only what Christ has done for me on the cross makes me righteous and worthy. And through the blood of the Lamb, I come before you, Father, Lord Jesus, to seek for your direction and your purpose in my life. If my people were called by my name. You see, the future of this nation does not rest in the hands of bankers who own the International Monetary Fund, who determine how finances are going to be done. It is not in the hands of talking heads on television, those who run as influencers, catching the very in thing at the moment. God won't change his mind on that. It is not to do with politicians who just check where the wind is blowing, which side they will go. But God says his decision rests squarely in the hands of his redeemed. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face. In other words, the children of God need to come before God. Now sometimes we find it very difficult. I don't know about you, but even as a, a pastor and as a child of God, one of the hardest things for me <clears throat> is when I see in public, see what's going on in our society, that I know that my, in my flesh I get upset and angry about it. It's so hard to, to separate the sinner from the sin. And the only person who can do that is God the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said to his disciples when you study John 14 to 16, 
they were believing in their hearts that Jesus will be with them forever. He was never going to leave them. And he drops this clangor in the midst of all the conversation with them when they said, show us the Father. And when he said to the disciples, I've been with you so long and you don't even know that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And Thomas says, show us the Father. And then the Lord, as he speaks to them, says, you don't seem to get it. I've got to go. If I don't leave, the counselor will not come. And they, they are worried about themselves and their future and they get despondent. And he explains to them that unless he goes, which meant he dies on the cross, rises again from the dead and ascends into heaven on the 40th day after his resurrection. And that as he ascends to the Father and telling his followers to wait in the upper room for the Spirit to come, because up to that point, Peter had said to the Lord, I will never deny you. All the others will let you down, but I will die for you. He rebuked the Lord for saying, Peter, you will, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. You see, all the disciples followed him in the flesh. They believed in what he said, but there was no courage and power to live for the Lord. Because when the shepherd was struck, almost all of the disciples took off. And you and I, when pressure comes, I, one of the things I always grapple with as a servant of God, uh, even having suffered persecution in my own family in South Africa, being disowned, none of that compares to what the early Christians suffered. Now, if you look at it logically and clinically, you will see it was impossible for Christians to be tied to a stake for thousands of people in the Col Colosseum watching them being burnt with tar and timber being put under their feet and not one of them was screaming. I don't know if I can do that if God doesn't touch my life. Yet they were singing hymns or being burned to death. No human being can do that in the flesh unless he's overcome by the Spirit of God upon his life. And I always say to the Lord, I might be brave, but when time comes, I'm a coward. And unless your Spirit strengthens me, I don't know how I can lay down my life for you. And here, God says to them, if my people humble themselves and repent of their wickedness, me, a Christian being wicked? Well, one of the hardest things I found, as I said to you, is trying to separate the sinner from the sin. It is so difficult when you see them putting their sin and the things they're doing and the anti-God rhetoric in your face to stay in your flesh without getting angry, without getting frustrated. Now you've got two choices as a church. You've got two choices as a Christian. You can either choose to be a fortress. In other words, put your walls up. Stay within your believers. Don't mix with the world. What Jesus said, we must, we must go out there. We must become part of that. Otherwise they won't hear. How do we relate to them? We, we are not asked to become a fortress. Where we set up our things and we hide in the place where we live. We care for one another. We comfort one another. But we don't know how to take the light of the gospel into a dark world. Or we can choose to be a light on a hill. A light on a hill does not get covered by a bushel or a city on a hill. It is so bright that everybody else can see. In other words, God calls us as Christians to be an event in our community, to reach, to the, reach out to the people whom God has sent us to minister to. And as leaders, 
as people of the kingdom of God, we must constantly seek God's mind for assurance and clear direction as to where our church or us as leaders, how do we reach our decadent, anti-God, difficult community? They are human beings like us. They feel pain, they feel rejection, but how would God give us a strategy as a body of Christ to be able to be a witness in our community? <clears throat> now, I'll just share one incident in our last ministry. We came into a town where there was no Christian witness as such in the schools, in the secular schools. And we sought God in prayer and fasting, and that's what God says. You want to see God break through you in, in your life? You want to see God give you strategies in your workplace? You want to see God opening people's hearts to be able to uh, share the gospel and their hearts being prepared, and you can't even understand why you shared something so simple and they want to know more? He said, you spend your life in prayer asking for divine appointments, asking God to prepare you so that you will be salt and not a saltless salt in the society in which you live, so that people may feel thirsty for not you, but for the living waters that is Jesus Christ himself. How we conduct ourselves, what we do. And so we spend time in prayer, seeking God, Lord, how would, could you open a door for us? My wife and I were very actively involved in Scripture Union and we wanted to start some kind of a Christian witness in the school and be able to go there on a regular basis. We didn't know anyone but we prayed and our children were at the school. We deliberately chose to send our children because I'm a convert from a secular uh, and a non-Christian faith. I believe our children got to be light where they are and the onus is put on us as parents to live your life to have Christian principle. It is so easy to choose a Christian school and a Christian environment where everything is protected. But I found in my life that some of the worst scoundrels comes out from Christian private schools because they take everything for granted, everything is done for them, and they really are not put in the spot to discover where they are. My, my daughter, she was about 10, 10 or 11 at that time. Of her own back, she challenged the other faiths in the class and said, I would like to present the Easter message during Easter. And amazingly, the principal allowed that to, to happen. God can do amazing things. You think that big and that's the big you will be. You think small, you'll affect people in a small way. You've got to trust God. God is bigger than this world, bigger than this universe. And I'm told, as you would uh, read First Chronicles 12, verse 32, they have only one line in the Bible, one line. They are called the sons of Issachar. And I took that as my prayer for my life, for the whole of my ministry and to this day. The sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel must do. And you, you won't know that until you seek God and ask God's Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Counsel me. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a counselor. He comforts you when you go through difficult times. He corrects you. And when you are not listening, he rebukes you. When you seek his face, he guides you. He leads you into all truth. He imparts into your life the fruit of the Spirit. <coughs> he imparts into your life particular gifts that you might use to further the kingdom of God. 
How can he counsel you in, if you, in Jesus' name, don't ask him to give you advice or direct you in the decision you make. That is from how much you spend in your business to what God is calling to do with where you build your house, what you do. Every aspect of your life you commit to God. That might seem tedious, but that's what God wants. Because when you put, when you, you will never come second when you put God first. You will never come second when you put God first. In every, you know, the first church and the members of that church are here, two of our dear friends. I used to say people that I even commit my grocery list to the Lord so that he will direct me whether I should buy something or wasting money on it, what I should be doing. That's how much I want my intimacy with the Holy Spirit so that he directs me. Not just for anything major. I don't know why we think that God's interested in only the big things. He's interested in everything in your personal life. If you would ask him to guide them. Mind you, I never, never knew the Bible. I was 17 years old when I came to the Lord. I hated Christianity. I hated the Christian faith. Because I saw what Christians did. Some of my bosses were Christians. They would carry a Bible to church. But they will be the worst bosses that you could ever work for because we were black we were treated terrible so i took my judgment of the bible from the way christians those who called themselves christians treated me i hated christianity i looked at christ as someone who came came to africa gave the bible and took the land i admired the anc until i met a white man who i didn't like an africana whose life, you see, in his life, I put him to so much of test. But I saw the gospel. I didn't hear the gospel. No one preached to me. I saw the gospel. Amazing stuff that enabled me to refuse to like the Godland, refuse to be a priest in my Hindu faith, to be disowned by my mother, and yet to trust God to the very end. And that's what God is calling us. We can't sit still and do nothing. We have to turn. If we've got bad attitudes towards people, we have to turn from our wicked ways. And you know, I retired from full-time ministry in 2020, the long weekend in January, after 40 years in this country and 46 years taking South Africa. I didn't realize that when I retired, I had so much of hurt in my heart that I never dealt with. I just kept it. It took me six months to fast, pray, weep before God for people that hurt me, people that undermined, people that turned against me for the sake of the gospel, that God had to remove every log from my heart, not my eyes, my heart, because that's where it hurts. I came to the place where I now even leave the speck in my brother's eye to God. That's what God can do with us if we prepare to be what God wants us to be. You know, the whole of the Old and New Testament is so full of people that humble themselves. Many lay prostrate and said, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do to see God's face. And in terms of the school, a 92 or 93-year-old man who for years and years, a Lutheran man, who was praying for someone to open the door into a secular school, he got in contact with my wife. He gave his first contribution to start the Christian work in the primary school. And when we went to the school, the Lord said, before you go, we saw, we did, went to a very big church then, 
but God was providing for us. One of my principles, that's what God called me, never ask for money, never preach about money, God will provide for you. And I've all my life done that, having come from a banking experience and a banking world to trust God. And we, I said, Lord, what do you want us to do? As we began to see God's face, he said, that school is in great needs of a laptop. The disadvantaged kids don't have proper shoes. Uh, and there are needs in that school. You need to. So we walked up to the principal. Before we even asked to do anything, we provided these things. And the school could say, why do we do it? He said, I don't know, because we were put on our heart to do it. That became the key that opened an unlimited door to my wife, Wendy, and her team to take the gospel into the primary school. And then into other schools wanted us to come. And that's what God does. Hear what God wants you to do in your current situation. I do not believe for a moment that God ever intended any church to close. Somebody forgot to see and hear the vision of God for their generation and for their time. It is no good going before God in eternity and realizing God gave you opportunities and you didn't see it. And you didn't see it. Like the man who prayed to God and said, Lord, when he fell into a raging river, as a man of faith, he said, Lord, help me. And as he's going under, he sees a log come past, lets it go past. Crying out to God, God, please help me. Next thing, somebody throws him a rope and he still cries out, God, help me. Then a helicopter come across and the man drowned. He goes before God and says, why didn't you do anything? He said, I did. I sent you a log. I sent you a piece of rope. I sent you an helicopter. And you didn't take any of the, the opportunities I gave you. Let us look outside of our box. Every great man, mission, missionary, any founder of any great work of God, always thought outside the box to find out what God wants to be done. I would have never survived in ministry or saw them, the miracles that God did, the revival that broke out in people's lives without prayer and fasting. My life changed when I left the church for two years. I could not see what was happening in the book of Acts. Genuine conversion, genuine transformation. And I walked away. And God brought me back in the most amazing circumstances that I cannot explain here, that my whole life turned around again. And then, being the first convert, a man who led me to the Lord didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. And yet he led me to the Lord. And I knew nothing about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Then comes the next man, with all his seven years of theology, <clears throat> couldn't reach the Muslim community. It's funny, you know, we, any intellectual individual Christian, you try all your arguments, you try your theology, and you take your taste of theology. And when everything fails, then we go in prayer and fasting want to know what God wants to do for me. When that should be the first thing in your life. And during the revival, the Lord gave me a promise which he still honors today. If you spend your life in prayer, seeking my face, you will never be tired. But when you go on holidays and you want to do something else, you will be tired. He multiplies the hours of my sleep every day. I'm awake at about two and I'll pray till three, then I'll go to bed, go to sleep. Then I'll get up at four, our praying for people. The Spirit of God will remind me who I need to pray for and keep it. And I had a, you asked my wife, I had a very busy life. 
pastored a church that grew to a huge church, traveled all over Australia. I was the five years the pastor for the national Sri Lankan community, traveling everywhere, taking seminars, preaching at crusades, running conferences for Bible Society, for the Gideons and other organizations, and still never missed my prayer time. If you're too busy to pray, you are too busy. If you can't make time for the Word of God, there's something wrong. Because God's not going to give you eternity to study the Scriptures. He gave the Scriptures for us to use it here. In heaven we rejoice. And so, my challenge to you as a people of God is this. Nehemiah faced such a challenge. And he wasn't even born in Jerusalem. He was probably a child born during the uh, time in exile. And yet, he heard about the terrible humiliation of his people while he was in exile in Susa. And he was the most expendable individual in his society <coughs> as a Jewish young man. He was the wine taster. In other words, if you drop dead tasting the wine, the king will say, ooh, someone was wanting to kill me. And there were people who tasted food. Saddam Hussein had five people tasting his wines and his food. And no one knew other than two closest people where he would sleep that night. That's how the, the man was living in fear. And that was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a nobody, an expendable individual. And yet, God touched his heart. And my thing is this, that God, before God brings a blessing to a church, to a fellowship, to a city, to a society, he has to put a burden on some individual who carry. And Nehemiah was that expendable individual that carried the burden. And he knew, I can't go before the king. If I go <coughs> uninvited, I could be put to death immediately, depending on the king's mood. But he spent four months crying, weeping, prayer and passing, starting in the Jewish calendar year of Kislev, which is November-December. He concluded his fasting at Nisan, which is about March-April. Four months until God said, now is the time to go and see this man. And you know the rest of Nehemiah, how he became one of the greatest strategists and the rebuilder of the world. But before him, Zerubbabel had to go back to restore spirituality. It was a mess. Gates were burned. Then Ezra went to restore the, the spiritual practice of the Jews. And then years later, 16 years later, Nehemiah goes. And Nehemiah, all he prayed was, he went to God as he prayed. He said, I just want, to, I, I want resources to be able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He didn't realize God gives you pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. The king was in the right mood, and the king said to him, Oh, no, 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 you're not just going on your own. I'm sending you a complete platoon to accompany you, so no one will touch you. And I've given letters to take to the forests of Lebanon, that they'll give you all the timber you need to restore it, and take as much as you want to finish your task. <coughs> he was a man. All he wanted to do was try and rebuild the gates, but he got more than what he asked for. And that only comes when we know the mind of Christ, when we spend time in prayer. Ask any man or a woman of God whom God has used to start any movement, any work, any mission work, you will know it was born out of tears and prayer and seeking the face of God for things to happen. I hope that you as a congregation will not sit and say, well, look, we're a small group, 
we've got no one, we've got mainly elderly people amongst us and got a lot of little children, but what can we do in Narakor? How can we touch this town? What can we do? The thing is that we need to seek God's face. We need to wait for God's timing. We need to ask for a way to reach our community. Let us be the sons and daughters of Issachar who understood the times in, his, in, in the nation and knew what Israel must do. Every time when I was in pastor and leading and discipling men and now I just sort of mentor men of God but the thing is that <coughs> Lord what do you want to do? The Lord after four years because I was such an ambitious young man with money I, I believe that God will never trust me with money again. And it was in Pathway. Four years after we were uh, two years after we got married, but four years after leaving college, my wife gave me a sheepskin rug, and I should take it into the Mallee and, and go in prayer. And then I had a distinct thought of God drop into my heart: go back and study finance in the Australian context, because you're going to be helping a lot of pastors, and some of the worst managers of money are pastors, because they just you know we got this thing in Christianity: poverty is holiness, rubbish. If we, you know, I, I took it to people that we are wanted to see a Christian bank being done where you only get 1% of your profit in your investments and in your capital, but 98% of it should go to building of God's kingdom. None of the rich people wanted to be part of it. And I'm talking about Christians. Imagine what we can do. That's what Muslims do. They use the oil money and build mosques everywhere. But oh no, we are worried. The money, our money possesses us rather than investing it. He owns the cattle on a Some of us live like the pharaohs, thinking we'll take all our wealth and we'll put it in our grave, so it'll stay with us until the next life we'll be able to use it. I'm afraid whatever happens here, no matter what you do here, ends here. A new life begins beyond the grave. And God is challenging us. How can we be part of our community? How can we understand the times? The greatest gift we can have, old or young, is a gift of prayer and intercession. Because if we don't keep asking, we don't keep seeking God's face, we don't keep knocking on His door, we will not find, we will not have the doors open to us, we will not receive. Because how can you expect anything when you are prayed for nothing? I was often told as a young Christian, if you aim for, aim for nothing, you'll hit it. And one thing that's taken away from us is our mind before we die or before Alzheimer's get older. But until that time, we have the ability to pray. We have the ability to ask God. One person we can trouble to the end is God. <clears throat> answer me, Lord. He'll either answer you or show you a different direction. We can be incredibly effective in the work that we do. In Bordertown, every question I asked the church when, it was, when I went there can't be done. They don't do it in the country. Is there a youth group? Oh, most of the kids go to the city. Uh, is anyone reaching our communi community? Now, nah, well, they don't seem to want to be listening. Uh, who told you that? I told myself that. Did the Spirit of God tell you that? So I went and started a work in the meatworks. I went, I prayed and prayed for months, and then I went. Amazingly, the managing director then, his marriage had just split. I knew nothing. 
And the bosses, the two German brothers, said, go and see, see the managing director. So I went to see him, and he was very down because he was struggling. His marriage had just busted, and he started asking me questions. <coughs> because he knew I was a minister. And therein the door was open, and I went to the meatworks. The first day I went there, no one spoke. No matter where I sit, nobody wanted me to sit next to them because I had this picture that I was going to whack them over the head with the Bible and yell at them. All I wanted to do was to be their friend. Ended up being counselor with so many of those people, financial problems, taught them how to save for their holidays, uh, able, able to help them get their loans. To, and when they saw that, they wanted to know who is the one that motivates you and you don't take any reward for it. And I can say that one that changed my life is Jesus. And I can tell you about him. I am the right to speak. We're not doing that these days. We tend to be inward looking. We're burying our talents in the ground. And God hates it. We do nothing with it. But he even said to the man who hid it, said, aren't you, you're a, you're a tough master. He said, you could have put it in the bank and had a bit more money than what I gave you. What have you got in your hand? What gift have you got? What ability have you had? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Because let me, let me tell you, whether you leave it to your children or not, it doesn't matter. The fact is, you will not, after the grave, have the ability, no matter if you leave a will behind, how that money is spent, how things go on. We don't, you'll, you'll never know. Because it's not your business anymore, it's God's. But God's business is what you did with what he gave you. I gave up an amazing career, left my family, my culture, never saw my never been there when my mother died, never was able to bury any of my brothers. I spoke at only one funeral, got there in time, but he died before I got there. But you know what? I would never exchange what I have for what I left behind. And God can do the same for you. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you know us so well. You long day in and day out for us to seek your face, to ask for your purpose and direction in our personal lives and how we can serve the body to which we belong. What can we do to be able, Father, to extend your kingdom and be salt in a saltless generation? And Lord, to be living water in a thirsty generation. Lord, condemning the people. Lord, disagreeing with what they're doing, having a go at them, Lord, does not change a society. But God's love and mercy flows out. And you never gave up on us. Lord, if you came in 1971, sorry, 1970, I would have gone to hell, Lord. But you revealed yourself to me in 1971. Oh, how thankful I am. But Father, let me not be selfish, but to realize there are still billions of those that have not heard. What part can I play? What part can you play in extending the kingdom of God? We will never take anything that God's given us here beyond the grave. But another soul, another life changed, another life touched for Christ will go beyond this life into the next. Bless your people, Father, and especially the young ones that are sitting here. Touch their hearts. May they be the answer to, to today's solution and tomorrow's. May they be inspired. May the children and grandchildren in this congregation be mighty men and women for the kingdom of God. Because, Lord, it never stops until you return. And then you return as judge. It's too late, Lord. But while your love persists, 
all your mercy is poured out. Help us to be cupbearers of your grace and take it out into our community. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Thank you.